From the Pennsylvania Convention Center in Philadelphia, it's the ASN Kenny Week 2014 podcast, a discussion of the latest scientific and clinical advances presented at this year's meeting. ASN thanks Opco Health Renal Division for support of this podcast. Chair of Kidney Week 2014, and I'm here today uh, on the second day of, of Kidney Week speaking with a number of participants who are going to introduce themselves. All right. Thanks, Dr. Quaggan. Um, I'm John Roberts. I'm a third-year fellow at Duke University, and uh, this is the third time I've been at ASN. And I'm uh, Kathy Tuttle. Uh, I'm a nephrologist from Spokane, Washington, and uh, professor of medicine at University of Washington, and chief academic officer at Providence Healthcare. And I've been to so many ASNs, I can't remember how many it's been. (laughs) Well, great. So thanks very much to both of you for joining me here today. And what we really want to do is find out what you think is terrific at ASN, what's been hot, what's been exciting. So maybe we could start off by seeing what you like today. Sure. Thank you. Um, My favorite thing to do, I definitely enjoy just cruising the posters, Um, number one, because so many other uh, events, you know, you're watching a lecture at the poster. You get to stand up and talk to everybody, and they're eager to explain things to you. Um, Today was really cool. There were a lot of posters about... uh, cardiovascular disease and uh, hemodialysis modalities. Um, after that, I went to the atrial fibrillation session, which that's kind of my, my interest is where cardiovascular disease interacts with kidney disease. And so, like, when I'm teaching students about um, GFR and whatnot, I try to remind them that, you know, the, to have a good kidney function, you have to have a good PGC, like a pressure in the glomerular capillary, and so the heart's tied to that. And so I think that's kind of, to me, that's like the low-hanging fruit for like clinical and outcomes related research is to try and find uh, these new areas where we can apply uh, methods to um, affect outcomes in cardiovascular disease and how does that affect the kidney. And so this AFib session was really cool. Um, They were showing how basically incidence of AFib affects GFR progression in kidney disease. And then patients who got ablated, their rate of GFR decline improved if they stayed out of AFib compared to the ones who reverted back into AFib. Um, so I think just even subtle changes in cardiac output like that, I think, affect you know, GFR loss and CKD over time. That's stuff I'm interested in. Sure. It sounds, cool. sounds great. So you think you're going to go back with some new ideas, maybe some new ways to think about your patients? Yeah. 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 So, Kathy, what's been your favorite part of the meeting so far? Well, I always enjoy the plenary sessions. Um, And one of the things that I appreciate about the ASN meeting is that um, much of the plenary content is not from nephrologists. And I really enjoy learning from scientists and other disciplines. Um, In general, it's interesting, but there are learnings from their science, their skills, their interests that hopefully we can bring into innovation in kidney disease. And so um, I enjoyed 
both the plenary sessions yesterday and today, yesterday hearing about really a practical use of stem cells and the what seems to be the possibility of near-term replacement of pancreatic islets. Um, I did an endocrine fellowship before I did nephrology, and even uh, then, in the mid-'80s, we were trying to do islet cell transplants in the liver, but they didn't survive, and, and, and um, there are lots of reasons for that. But it, it's an idea that's been around a long time, but this is a fresh way to think about delivering islets. And when we think about the problem of chronic kidney disease, there's no bigger problem than diabetes. It's now more than half. And really the solution to me is prevention and treatment of diabetes. And so I found that especially exciting, not only because of the 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 technology and the innovation of the science, but this is actually related to the most common cause, the root cause of chronic kidney disease. And then today, I just particularly uh, was fascinated by the, the, the genetics of, of anthropology and trying to understand who we are and where we came from. Um, so um, I just think that those, those get me going every morning before I go off into the more detail-oriented or special sessions uh, because I feel inspired and I always learn something that I haven't heard before, especially after all these ASN meetings. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I was amazed this morning to see how they can, you know, do the whole genome from a single hair from, you know, an individual who's 14,000 years old. What, what did you think of the plenary session this morning? Yeah, it was very interesting. Um, to try and think about where did we come from, and uh, I guess you know, for the audience members who didn't didn't participate, uh, the researcher, you know, he finds I guess what bone samples, hair samples, uh, any kind of uh, sample he can to I guess track uh, the migration routes of our ancient peoples, and you know I guess the patterns out of whether we came out of Asia and crossed the Bering Strait into America or, um, you know, where did the Native American peoples come from and who populated South America. It was really interesting. Um, I'd like to hear from y'all about what do you think the implications of his research would have on our field, you know, kidney disease and especially things like uh, hereditary FSGS or hypertension. What do you think? Yeah, I think, and I think what Kathy said is exactly right. I think by bringing in researchers, innovation from outside the field of nephrology will get different perspectives and maybe have new ways to approach, you know, the biggest problems that we face. So, you know, to me, although they haven't started on the Aboriginal uh, studies in Australia, it's clear that that population of patients has a very different form of diabetic nephropathy. Their genetics are definitely going to be different, and by taking an evolutionary approach, it may be that we finally get, you know, the, the holy grail, that missing piece that's really going to give us the clue as to progression and development of diabetic nephropathy. So I couldn't agree more with what you said, Kathy, and, and the plenary talk yesterday as well. Um, yeah, fascinating. Islet cells, I mean, he's spent his entire career working on this. We had a two-day preliminary program, Build a Kidney, uh, before the start of Kidney Week, and it was two days packed with developmental biologists, bioengineers, stem cell uh, people, and they were really battling and talking about how are we going to get to the same place with the kidney, and I think it's a very exciting time uh, in nephrology. So we also had a special session today on Ebola. Uh, did it, 
either of you managed to get to that. Unfortunately, I was um, chairing a session at another time, but that's one that I'm definitely going to watch on the web. And um, now wearing my clinical nephrology hat, um, you know, some people have made the case that maybe this has sort of been over-exaggerated or something, but I don't think it is, because if it's not Ebola, it's going to be something else. And I think we are going to have to adapt new strategies to, one, give optimal care to the people in need, but also protect health care workers and, and do this properly. So I think it's an important discussion that needs to happen in general, because in the era of global health, which you're involved in, John, people are traveling all over the world. They are bringing back new types of infections that perhaps we haven't seen uh, in the developed world. And in some ways, that almost links back to the anthropologic uh, perspective. But we need to be ready for this. And so I'm very interested in learning how um, leading institutions are preparing, how people who have managed Ebola patients with success, meaning patient survival and Healthcare professionals also surviving, uh, how they did it, and what we could, what we can learn from that. And I don't think it'll just be for Ebola. I think that this could be an issue for other transmissible diseases that we're now spreading around the world. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And you know, they, I did go to the session, and they had some great practical approaches to dialyzing patients. And there were a couple of really interesting things that I didn't know about. So the patient in Germany who developed kidney failure, they used plasmapheresis with a lectin base to remove viral load and actually showed that the viral load was dramatically reduced after a single session, mm. suggesting that, you know, nephrologists are not only supporting mm. the life of these patients, but may also be improving outcomes by treatment. Um, so, John, tell me something else that you saw today that really sparked your interest. Uh, one thing that popped up, I guess, related to what Dr. Tuttle was saying about um, diabetes, when we were, me and my other co-fellows, we were trying to find the uh, educational symposium we wanted to go to. It was unanim unanimous. We wanted to see the uh, presentation on uh, SBLG2 inhibitors because uh, there are so many. I think there was like a list of seven or eight, and I think we wanted to learn more about uh, potential as a class. And, uh, you know, talking about uh, diabetic nephropathy, hyperfiltration, it was really interesting that, uh, you know, they showed data that patients lose weight and have improved blood pressure control. And um, people suspect, and maybe you can say whether you believe it or not, that uh, GFR declines a little bit and it may ameliorate the hyperfiltration that's seen. So that was kind of interesting. Well, and it um, made us think. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up that session. That To me, it was interesting on a lot of levels from the standpoint of science and the yeah. potential innovation of a new therapy, but it was almost historical. Okay. Ralph DeFranzo gave the opening talk, and for those of you who don't know Ralph, um, he and I go back many years and have a common heritage as both diabetologists and nephrologists. And uh, when I was uh, young... And he was just a little older. He was one of my mentors. And I remember when uh, we were doing rat studies and Ralph talked about, we had fluorescein, which was the original SGL2 inhibitor that could not be given to humans. I think he talked a little bit about why that was so. But I remember him saying 30 years ago <laughs> that this could be a treatment for diabetes. But uh, at the time, I, I was a little uncertain because I didn't, really think that peeing out glucose was necessarily the optimal treatment. 
however, having said that, that was a very naive view. And um, I really did enjoy the fact that renal hemodynamics came back to the fore in that session. Um, well, you know, along with others, maybe we've moved on and we do more work in the area of, on the one hand, cellular and molecular biology, on the other hand, outcomes research. Physiology really is the basis of so much of what happens in diabetic kidney disease. Mm -hmm. And some of the giants of the field were there. So not only did DeFranco give the opening lecture, um, Barry Brenner was there, uh, Roland Blantz was there. They made wonderful comments that really were very historical about this field, how we got here, how we got the therapies we started with, ACE inhibitors and ARBs, and, and... and the guiding principles from renal hemodynamics that led to those therapies as they might apply to thinking about SGL2 inhibition. I think we still don't know because the other hypothesis is that this is a volume effect, that they have osmotic diuresis and that's why they're losing weight and dropping their blood pressure. (laughs) And nobody's doing micropuncture anymore, so we really aren't going to find out. But David Cherney... Uh, from University of Toronto was the young person in the crowd who gave a very current perspective. But um, I think that balanced nicely the historical perspective. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was wonderful to sort of see that interchange between, I guess, if you will, the future and really the giants of this field who led us to where we are today. So I particularly enjoyed it because it really came, it's really brought us back full circle. And now it's a much more integrative view. It's not just hemodynamics and it's not just cell biology and it's not just outcomes. And to me, sort of making that link is really what translational research is all about. And and I, I just thought it was a fabulous uh, session all the way around. Yeah, yeah I I agree, and I think, you know, you make a great point that here at ASN, with more than 13,000 participants, we have all of the the giants, the historical, uh, you know, people who've really made the fields, but we've got lots of young, dynamic, energetic individuals who are all here ready to make, you know, great discoveries like you, John. So, um, and, and I agree, the poster sessions, as you say, are the place to start to see um, all of this newer newer work. Uh, Kathy, anything about the posters that you have seen? Well, you know, one of the things that I would say in general um, is it's a great networking opportunity. So that's the chance to really go talk to somebody who has a common interest or maybe something you just don't know anything about you want to learn about and really have that one-on-one discussion that you don't have in any other setting. And again, for young investigators or clinicians, it's a great way to make contacts, to develop collaborations uh, even if you're going into practice, you might meet someone who will give you a job. Uh, so um, I really like that because it personalizes the meeting, too. So you're not just another anonymous person in the crowd. And um, I think we all benefit from those one-on-one interactions. It can't be reproduced by an email or a text message or a tweet. Um, so I think the personal side of it and the chance for networking and connections is really a great thing about the poster sessions. Yeah. Like uh, the advice I give to yeah, residents or medical students is to just kind of wander the posters, almost like you're wandering uh, mm-hmm. the aisles of the grocery store almost. And I just kind mm-hmm. of go slow and, you know, read titles. And if something catches you, you know, you read it and talk to the the uh, presenter. Like uh, for some reason, um, all the posters about uremic solutes have kind of caught my attention here. Um, I found that really interesting about uh, um, solute transport and how solutes accumulate and which ones 
um, you know, are uh, excreted and how they correlate with symptoms. There's a lot of work uh, going on in that field. And people and who present posters here really like to talk to you, too. True. Because, <laughs> you know, it's something they're very interested in. Many times they're experts. And if you show a little bit of interest like that, they'll give you a one-on-one tutorial that you won't have any other opportunity to find. So I think it, it's, it really is um, a great opportunity, um, not only on the viewing side, but even for people who are presenting posters to have a chance to really talk in depth about their work when they aren't on a timer and have five slides. And uh, I actually think for original research, that's one of the best ways to have it presented. Yeah. Now, one thing we haven't spoken about yet is the Homer Smith Awardee lecture today. So Friedhelm Hildebrandt gave a terrific mm. uh, lecture. Um, amazing to me that he's discovered more than 50 genes, I think, mm-hmm. uh, underlying genetic disease. So comments, what did you think? Um, I mean, it was bewildering. Yeah, he's obviously done a lot of work. And, uh, you know, his lecture really outlined uh kind of from the, the top down, the approach to, you know, monogenetic causes of kidney disease. And, yeah, it was absolutely interesting and relates to some of the work we've done at our institution. And so I, I had a, a sense of how he approaches his problems. And I think we're going to see more, right, more research, more presentations similar along that vein in the future, hopefully finding novel targets right here. Yeah, yeah, I think, and, <laughs> and again, I'll age myself that, you know, uh, it wasn't too long ago, certainly during my training, we had, it was a black box, really, certainly for FSGS, for podocyte-related diseases, for nephronathesis, and just the speed with which discoveries can be made now with new technologies mm-hmm. is mind-boggling. Um, so, you know, I found it very uh, energizing, just a, yeah, just a very exciting, uh, you know, for the future and for junior investigators who are coming into the field now. So one of the things that, that I really liked about it was um, genetics have had promise but not much applicability yet. So, you know, there aren't many actionable genes, right, where we change a treatment or it really changes the prognosis. So I think on the clinical side, um, you know, we haven't adopted genetic testing because it's really not actionable. And, there, you know, there's some potential harms to people to know what they're programmed to do, too. Um, but... One thing he talked about was, to me, um, he he gave me a hope that we aren't too far away from more actionable genetic discoveries. So the uh, discovery that uh, a person with a certain genotype had a profile that would suggest benefit of CoQ10. So, you know, those kind of agents... um, we hear lots of anecdotes, you know, like a, a clinician will say, well, I treated my patient with this, and they got better. And, and, and they sort of get dismissed, especially when we hear about these trials of, like, antioxidants being negative. But the truth is there probably are some people who respond, but maybe not most people. And so it was very interesting because he also showed this proteinuric patient being treated with CoQ10, and at least that in a case report fashion, that temporal relationship to treatment and reduction in proteinuria and then withdrawal of treatment and increase in proteinuria. So obviously it's very preliminary and exploratory, but to me it was sort of the first time in a while when I thought, oh, there might be something actionable there. And we might begin to understand things like why some people might benefit from antioxidants and others might not. 
and maybe maybe his tool is something that will move us in that direction. So. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, what they've been doing in the cancer field and even for cystic fibrosis. It, mm-hmm. it appears there are subsets of patients right. with certain molecular fingerprints or right. genetic defects. So, I, yeah, it's a very exciting time. We might actually get some personalized uh, treatments for our patients. John, you wanted to say? Uh, well, just to um, kind of relate it to clinical experience, that was one of the most striking things I noticed when I transitioned from residency to fellowship. Um, how many uh, kind of young patients would progress to ESRD at early ages? And uh, I think we just attribute it to maybe their lifestyle or hypertensive nephrosclerosis. But um, hearing talks like this today, it does make you think about um, yeah, heritable causes of CKD. And when I bring that up with families, they are very interested in looking into that, and they're willing to you know, talk to their family members and sign people up. And he mentioned that one of the benefits would be at least giving your family or a patient a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And um, just in, in you know, our, our little pocket, I feel like families are like, absolutely. Like, we don't know why, you know, we have so many what, aunts and uncles on dialysis. Right. We don't think it's our fault, you know. So yeah. we would love for you guys to look into it. So um, I think there is a need out there, and patients are willing to volunteer to help this effort. Well, the, and, and I think the other learning is that in this case, it wasn't even a novel therapy. It was something that yeah. we right. could just go yeah, reach for read. right now yeah. that yeah. doesn't cost very much yeah. and for the right patient might work really well. So certainly I'm interested in novel therapies and have spent a lot of time thinking about that. But there are some simple things that maybe we can do for people that don't require a new drug approval or a lot of money, which to me is very exciting. Yeah. You know, John, you also mentioned that that talk reminded you of some some of the work going on at your mm-hmm. own institution. So today we had uh, the inaugural Michelle Wynn Endowed Lectureship. I know that you were uh, a colleague of hers there. Can you comment on it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Michelle Wynn, she was an associate professor at Duke University, and um, she got really ill in the past year, and she passed away in July of this year. And so that was really tough. Uh, she was... I guess you wouldn't say a rising star, a risen star in the field. You know, <laughs> she was a star already risen and flying, and whatever term you want to use. But uh, uh, I mean, aside from all that, everybody can look up the awards and everything. But like on a person-to-person level, she was amazing. Like when I started at Duke, I certainly was predisposed into nephrology, and so I kind of, you know, I looked at, you know, all the different uh, re- uh, researchers and their projects and. Her projects, which were basically uh, similar to what we were just describing, uh, using you know, genetic uh, analyses to find heritable causes of FSGS, um, I approached her, and she was wanting to meet with me at, when I was an intern, I believe. And so um, I would meet with her when I was an intern and a senior resident. About, And I expressed interest in joining her lab. And um, eventually in fellowship, I... Uh, I got into medical education, that's what I'm doing now, but I still worked with her closely, and she was really great. She was an amazing attending, um, amazing mentor. Her lab was packed with fellows, and um, if you want to, you could see that almost all the fellows have two talks and two posters here, and they're each they're each kind of they've using her techniques and just applying it to different families. They've identified separate genes 
involved in um, you know collagen causing FSGS or um, WNT signaling causing uh, FSGS. So they're all over the place, and I think everyone in her lab is um, doing amazing things based on the foundation she built. But so there was a lecture today, yeah, in her honor, and, and it was right before the session. So so it's kind of sad for sure. Um, we miss her, but you know, she did a, a lot of great work, and you know, yeah. what else can you say? You know. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you spoke very well, and I—I I was also a close friend, a colleague of Michelle, and even though she was younger than me, she was also a mentor to me. She was a phenomenal scientist and a wonderful human being. Who uh, she chose Andre Shaw to give the inaugural lectureship today, and he did an absolutely fantastic job of just. Uh, really uh, letting the audience know what a special person she was. He received a standing ovation at the end of the, at the, end of the talk, and there were a lot of, uh, not a lot of dry eyes in the audience, I can say. Um, I think he summed it up best by saying she was the heart and soul of the podocyte field, and, which is a fairly, relatively new, about a decade old, but she really uh, enucleated it, and um, anyway, she's going to be very missed um, but as you say she's got an incredible legacy mm-hmm. ahead of her so now moving on to the rest of the meeting we are on day two and uh, just another day and a half to go are there things that you're looking forward to over the next day and a half or have you looked far enough ahead in the program we're going day by day minute by minute <laughs> um so I, i've been involved in some of the fellow activities and so uh Things that are happening right now, the the Fit Bowl was one one event. So there's a, it's like a nephrology Jeopardy. And right before we uh, right before we came here, they were doing the case debate, which is the first time they've done this. So uh, it was really cool, like an interactive session. Two teams of fellows were, the case is kind of trickling in, right in little pieces and. They do. They battle it out and, and debate. Um, every time they answer something, they have to get the logic and reasoning behind it. Um, it was really cool. I think they're, we're going to start doing more things like this because, um, you know, we're all adult learners and, and fellows. You know, we can look up a lot of the knowledge, but I think, you know, when it comes down to it, we really respond to kind of this push and pull and, you know, debating about the evidence or debating about how to interpret a test. And so uh, this is a new addition to Kidney Week that I think is going to go over really well. And uh, Dr. Hitesh Shah and Keenar Javeri were mediating it, and they've been doing this format at their program. It's been very successful, so it's pretty cool. Well, and I would guess one of the really great things for you as a fellow is to also hear how other people do things, get different perspectives from people from a variety of different institutions, and not just in North America, but maybe from around the world. and, uh, you know, I always really enjoy seeing how other people think about a problem. Because if we, you know, let's talk to the same people all the time about the same things. What do we learn? It's sort of circular, right? So um, I, I think that that would be a, a very enriching experience for all of us, not just for fellows. And I'm looking forward to the late-breaking trial session tomorrow. Yeah. Um, you know, in nephrology, uh, as it's been pointed out over and over, we have lagged other <laughs> fields in conducting clinical trials. But we, it is, it is. And there are many people working hard to change that. And we have a lot of energy around that. So we've, n- not just in nephrology, but um, in, in a number of fields now, the trials that have been reported recently have been so resoundingly negative, with rare exception. 
And so I'm hoping to hear that something works for a condition. <laughs> but um, I also think that for me, it's an opportunity to rethink how we do clinical trials. Because I don't believe that all the basic science is wrong. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you know? um, but I think there's a problem in how we've tried to translate it. And I'm not saying that the basic science couldn't be better, too. I think that, that there's opportunity for improvement all around. But to me, there's something wrong systemically with how we are doing studies. So even if we have negative trials, it's almost sort of like the autopsy, right, to take a look at it and ask not only what was the disease, but what was wrong with the process that we used to address it. Um, so I'm interested in the clinical trials, no matter which way they go, and that kind of takes me back to my roots with my first mentor in diabetes who told me in, in research, it's always important to ask a question where the answer doesn't matter, yes or no. Um, and I've been wrong so many times that um, I actually look forward to it now because <laughs> the, the, the answer is more interesting than anything I could have prospectively imagined. So I'm looking forward to what we've learned in the trials that have been done. Hope for positive findings, but even if they're not, mm -hmm. I think we can look at those trials and then building on this portfolio of negative trials, really start thinking about innovation in clinical trial design and, and particularly more pragmatic approaches uh, to trying to address some of these conundrums that we're dealing with. Yeah, and I think, you know, Sharon... Mo, in her presidential address, did speak a little bit to this about how we lump everything together. And, you know, I, coming from the basic science side of things, I'm also excited by seeing all of the discoveries that we are going to be able to design better clinical trials. I agree with you. Tomorrow's uh, Hot Topics is going to be really exciting, the late breaking, and even the posters. I can tell you there's some really, really exciting posters in there as well. So, John. Um, just since I, I like to think about cardiovascular disease in our kidney disease patients, and since our kidney disease patients were excluded from most of the cardiovascular trials, maybe you could help explain it to me. Could the pragmatic trial be our our avenue into pushing clinical research forward? You know. Well, I think so, too, because it gets beyond efficacy yeah. to whether or not things work in the real world. Yeah. And, you know, that's been another issue is that even when we have positive trial results, sometimes those results don't translate into what's happening in practice, or even if it is implemented, we aren't seeing the outcomes that we expected. And part of it is we construct very artificial environments around doing clinical trials. Patients are not treated right. in the real world like we manage people in clinical trials. And so, for one, I think it will be more relevant to conduct point-of-care research, but it will also cost less especially if we're using, like, our electronic health records to collect the data. And we're actually doing it in the real treatment environment, and we figure out if it's even possible. So absolutely. Uh, and, and then I think we don't worry so much about, you know, putting those kidney patients in the trial because they're going to mess things up, because what yeah. you do is you do an intervention and you let it run and you collect the data. And you find out if it, not only if it, if it works, but, you know, in the real world, can it be done? Because none of the novel things are going to matter. If we can't even figure out what the medication list in a clinic is, do you think that we're going to give novel therapy X, Y, and Z and some complex injection regimen when we can't even get them to take their diuretics? And I'm not blaming the patients. I want to come back to that was a 
a comment earlier, you know, well, it's, you know, some people say it's their fault. You know, I, I think we need to get away from blaming the blame game. And, you know, there are lots of reasons people do things that we might not really understand. And I think the pragmatic trial off, also offers example to get the patient perspective. What do you really want out of this endeavor? What are your goals and dreams and aspirations? What matters to you? Most of them really don't care what any lab test looks like. They care about whether or not they're alive and whether they feel good and can do what they want to do. And I would like to move to outcomes that really reflect those sorts of things. Not that I don't care about potassium. I do, and acidosis and stuff. I know that those lead to bad outcomes. But we've really ignored the patient perspective. And so I I think that pragmatic trials, and we do have some sessions here, for example, on the time trial, Mm -hmm. because dialysis is a great place to pilot that sort of thing. Um, but it can be done in other settings, too. Is I, I think that besides those, those sort of more conventional scientific issues, we have an opportunity to really translate therapies more quickly, do them in a way that really work, and take into account what the stakeholders in this game really want instead of us assuming what they want. Well, it sounds like there's lots of exciting things still to come in Kidney Week and certainly lots of exciting things to come in nephrology in the years to come. So I think we all want to get back to the sessions now. So we're going to wrap up today's uh, podcast. And I'd like to thank uh, Kathy and John both for joining me here today. And And thank you, Susan, for a wonderful program and leading the charge so that we can hear all of these exciting things. You've worked incredibly hard along with Dr. Sharon Moe and the rest of the program committee, and we're all benefiting from it. So thanks to you. You have been listening to the ASN Kinney Week 2014 podcast. ASN thanks Opco Health Renal Division for support of this podcast. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.